You're listening to Season 3 of Future Ecologies. And this is the sound of a plant being burned. It's a plant that everyone loves to hate. One of the most hard scrabble, glistening gold, resilient, domineering plants here on the West Coast. It's Scotch Broom, and I'm sure you folks have heard about it. Oh, we've definitely heard of it. And uh, before we get any further, hey, Future Ecologies listeners, we've got a story for you today coming from a couple of guest producers. I'm excited to introduce you to my neighbors, Sadie. Hi. And Russell. Hello. I also just want to note that you guys are part-time my neighbors on Main Island, just across Active Pass. That's true. We live across the street from each other, so to speak. It's a busy street full of uh, ferry traffic. So, Adam, I think you're acquainted with Broom, right? Yeah, I mean, only insofar as I spend a good portion of my summer hanging off of ropes trying to remove it from cliff faces. So yeah, we're, we're acquainted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a plant that's iconic, infamous, and really complicated. I remember when I was a little girl, I loved the bright yellow color of the flowers. But whenever I would mention it to my grandmother, she would respond with a deluge of words unfit for the ears of small children. It's an introduced species here in BC, and I've heard so many different things about it over the years. What about you, Russell? Well, I was always told that Broom came here because a Scottish settler was homesick and his wife mailed him a few seeds to plant outside his cottage in the 1800s. So, Sadie, why does Scotch Broom have such a bad reputation? Scotch Broom thickets overtake and displace native plant species, especially in the beloved Gary Oak ecosystems. They limit the movement abilities of animals, disrupt rangeland and browsing activities, they can harm tree plantations and reforestation efforts, and often contribute to wildfire fuel loads. And broom is just one example of an invasive species that is prominent in these territories. In this region and in all regions around the world, people are grappling with the consequences of introduced species, changes to their ecosystems, and how to respond. Because when we think about a plant or an animal as invasive, it turns every ecosystem into a combat zone and makes any response an act of war. But this episode isn't just about Scotch Broom. Sadie and Russell are here to tell us the story of a small island community, an animal run amok, and a different way to think and talk about our interspecies predicaments. Sounds like an episode of Future Ecologies. Uh. (laughs) A good one too, I'd tune in. Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Wasatch, Penelicut, Belitsum, Lalem Saratineo, and other Holcomium speaking peoples. This is Future Intelligence. Well, when the Creator made these islands, He made them from our people. They were human at one time. And He made them from our people. And He threw them from Sanus, where we live. Our winter villages over there in the 
in Kusanich, and he threw them from there and landed in different parts of, of the straits out at sea and became those islands. And uh, when he was done his work, and then he checked on all the islands, he went to every one, and he arrived to this island and had no water here, not very good water here. So he went to the end of the point there, and, and the point, what they call Helen Point today. And he stood in there and faced the mountains far away with the snow on it. And he drew the water from there to here. So this island has good water. So again, my name is Russell, and I'm going to introduce you to Maine Island. What you just heard was Senchathan language expert, Jacinctin, who also goes by Dr. John Elliott, speaking to a crowd of festival goers on Maine Island. John is a respected elder of the Sartlip First Nation, one of the several indigenous groups closely linked to the Gulf Island region. Attentive listeners of our Scales of Change series will note that Maine Island is one of the Tlatleches, or the relatives of the deep, in Hwasanich culture. He and his people have stewarded these islands since time immemorial, and he was kind enough to educate me on a place that has been so central to my life, as my families are settlers there. In the 60s, my grandparents bought a piece of land on Maine and built a little cabin. Since then, a large part of my immediate and extended family has called Maine home at one time or another, and I've been going there since I was born. And we start our story here because of its unique population of deer. But first, if you don't know it, Maine Island is a part of what is known as the Southern Gulf Islands, located off the coast of British Columbia. Life was good for these Gulf Island pioneers, their challenge came from the land, and that yielded abundant crops for those who worked it. It was settled by European people in the 1850s and developed around agriculture and fishing, then logging and now tourism. Most of the island is rural and kind of suburban in parts. It's known for its hot summers and mild winters, beautiful beaches, and the iconic arbutus tree. Across the Gulf Islands, and on Maine especially, deer are just kind of everywhere. On the beaches and in the forest, like you might imagine, but they're also all over the roads and at times considered pests, entering into people's yards, orchards, and gardens looking for food, and they like to eat everything. But why is Maine special in this way, you ask? That's because two species of deer live there. Blacktail and fallow. Blacktail are indigenous, and fallow are invasive, or introduced. Here's my granny, Joanna, talking about the two different types of deer. Our deer are blacktail. They're not a menace. They can be annoying at times, but they're quite lovely deer, and we love to see them. We just like to put a fence around them so that they don't uh, eat all our stuff. The fallow deer are very destructive because they strip the bark off trees, they eat all the stuff that our own indigenous deer don't eat. Perhaps you can tell from that clip, but just to be clear, fallow deer, the introduced species, don't rank very high in my granny's books. 
The way she refers to our dear this and our dear that is actually kind of a running joke in our family. The joke is that we know that one type of deer is good and the other type is pure evil, according to her, but we can't for the life of us tell which one is which. She's gonna kill me if she ever hears this. Here's my uncle trying to figure it out. Which deer is which? They have a, a, a different shaped neck. They walk differently. They're, they're, um, they pretty well walk with their heads straight up, you know, like, like the neck goes straight up. And they can go from anywhere from white to black mm-hmm. and anything in between. Sometimes they've got um, spots on them. Like even not juvenile ones? No, not juvenile, no, oh. full grown. And their rack is like an elk. It's like not a... Like as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, Okay. If they have a rack, yeah. This guy doesn't have a rack. So you no, know he, that this guy is not a fallow deer. That is not he, a fallow he, because deer. Because of the shape of his head. Yeah, and okay. even the, just the way he walks around and does... I mean, so he's not one. I you know, just I know. That's what the thing is. I don't just know. Well, I wish a fallow deer would come so along. So do I. So you could see I it. know. I want to see the difference just so yeah. I can tell. She's not alone in her sentiment. Across the island, fallow deer are inferior to black-tailed deer. And she, like all the other full-time residents on Maine, can tell the difference. I got, a, I got like a survey pop question for you, if you're open to it. Yeah, the answer's 42. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an opinion on fallow deer versus indigenous deer? Yes, I do. Let's get rid of the fallow deer. Can you tell the difference? Absolutely. How do you tell? Well, they don't have a black tail. They're a species that is not native to our region, and they eat everything. They travel in massive packs, and they're, I don't know, it just seems that people are just looking at them as though they're cute, but they're actually eating monsters. You know, they poke their whole heads through my fence and eat the apple uh, tree that's along the side. When you say that a plant is deer resistant, that doesn't necessarily mean it's resistant to fallow deer. Our local songbirds are diminishing. Um, the salal is being trampled. I, I, I just think that you know, it's an environmental disaster that was never rectified, and now it's kind of out of control. Well, I find them uh, very dangerous. They're not deer, they're goats. Both species of deer on, on the island are problematic. Um, we haven't had hunting on Maine since the 60s. So, what's going on? Fallow deer, damadama, are an invasive species to Maine Island, BC. They can be hard to differentiate from the black-tailed deer, especially because both species can actually have black tails. In contrast to black-tailed deer, fallow deer can be many different colors. They keep their spots into adulthood, they have longer noses, and importantly, they're more skittish. They're very populous to the island, They have a big impact on the ecosystem, and they bother local residents in many ways. They trample and eat many plants, they jump out in front of cars, and decimate unfenced gardens. They have no natural predators and reproduce quickly. It's a big issue on the island, and is of concern to the Maine Island Conservancy Society, the Maine Island Ratepayers Association, and the community has even formed the Maine Island Fallow Deer Committee to address the issue. 
The Fallow Deer Committee has four subcommittees and maintains an informational website, which functions, quote, for the purpose of informing the community about the impact of the fallow deer on Maine Island's ecosystems and to promote its restoration through responsible management of fallow deer, unquote. Let's back up. How did all this happen? How did the deer density on Maine Island get so out of control? A lot of people start the story in the mid-80s, when a woman named Paula moved to Maine Island from Germany. My name is Paula Buchholz. I have lived in Canada since 1986, and I started the deer farm on Maine Island in 1987. Paula farmed fallow deer on Maine Island for about 20 years. Paula was coming from a context where deer farms are common, and she saw some interesting opportunities and benefits that come along with the practice. People have used deer, and particularly fallow deer, uh, for thousands of years in Europe. They originate from Mesopotamia, and uh, have been held and are held in Europe in all the royal parks from Spain to England uh, to Hungary. The advantage, the meat of fallow deer is uh, very mild in flavor and uh, not tough at all because they are smaller deer and have a shorter muscle fiber and they are easier to tame. So, she decided, without any prior experience, to start a deer farm all by herself. First, I had to learn it. I traveled all over the U.S. and visited existing farms. I went to auctions and uh, purchased deer. And then I had to get them through quarantine to be tested for TB, brucellosis, anaplasmosis, and blue tongue. She set up her farm in 1987, learned deer farming practices, and began to launch her line of products. Everything from the meat itself to leather garments, venison pate, antler cutlery, and deer hide sofas. Running a farm with several hundred deer, um, that was quite an adventure. I liked, except the hard work sometimes was too much for my back when I sustained that injury, which was so severe that I could hardly lift a teacup. So it was not easy. And there was the issue of fencing. You have to have the fences eight feet high, otherwise they jump over it. And the gauge of the fence has to be right so that it doesn't come down when the fall storms come on. When the first fall storm came and fell on these fences with the big gauge, they went straight down to the ground if uh, a tree fell on them. They just went right down like there and the first bucks got out. I learned that the hard way 
I got a lot back in, but not all. Sometime shortly after Paula's farm became operational, her fences did not hold up in a storm, and several deer escaped her farm. Since then, the descendants of her deer have spread across Maine, have reproduced quickly, and Maine Island now has one of the highest deer densities in the region. In 2013, the Maine Island Conservancy estimated it at about 0.5 to 2 deer per hectare. While I, and possibly you, don't really know what that means, the report clearly says, quote, this abundance of deer is considered too high if the goal is to maintain historic plant and animal diversity within the ecosystems of Maine Island, unquote. To learn more about this, I contacted Dr. Peter Arkeese, a professor in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia and the Forest Renewal Chair in Conservation Biology. Let me know how I can help. He has studied the impacts of deer density in the San Juan and Gulf Islands. We talked over Zoom, Peter at his home on a small island near Maine, and me at my home in Vancouver. I asked him about how deer are impacting the ecosystems on Maine. He explained to me that a hyperabundance of deer impact an ecosystem in multiple ways, which he framed as direct and indirect. For Peter, the direct effects of overpopulation on an island like Maine is that deer eat specific plants that are palatable to them, such as Saskatoon berries. What does that do? It removes those plants from the landscape and the unpalatable plants that therefore have no competition and increase in abundance. The water, the light, the nutrients go to the plants which are not being eaten. They're not being eaten because they are things like broom, an introduced plant which is not very nutritious and digestible. So the direct effect of deer is to remove plant material. And by doing that, they affect the competitive regime of the remainder plants. And then there's the indirect effects. As Peter mentions, deer in hyperabundant densities will eat certain plants to the point of endangerment or extinction. And then the plants that aren't eaten become more abundant and thrive. Another indirect effect is from the hooves of the deer. As deer walk around, their small sharp hooves puncture the earth and some plants really like that, especially introduced plants. For example, broom. In essence, by removing competition and providing an ideal habitat for certain plants, deer accentuate the rate that some plants, especially introduced or invasive ones, succeed. This changes the dynamics of the ecosystem as a whole, which in turn has consequences for other species, such as pollinators and bird communities. If you know what a Saskatoon looks like in spring, it's covered in white flowers in May. So Saskatoon support pollinators. If you don't have rose and Saskatoon and other flowering plants, pollinators have less to eat. One of the things we see is that as shrubs disappear, pollinators disappear. There's lots of things that rely on those Saskatoons, pollinators, but the birds that feed on them later, the birds that nest in them or find cover from them, things like that. The more deer there are, the more palatable plants are eaten. This makes more opportunities for introduced and invasive plants to outcompete, spread, and alter the landscape even further. In the Gulf Islands and on Maine, 
Peter says that this often means an overall reduced amount of shrub cover, and the little amount that there is, is different than it would look with lower deer densities. Which has monumental effects on bird communities, pollinators, and other kinds of things. That process has been dubbed trophic downgrading. This is something that's been talked about on future ecologies already. Trophic downgrading, or trophic cascades, are situations when one part or relationship of an ecosystem is disrupted, and it has powerful and complicated effects on other aspects of that ecosystem. It's the trophic downgrading that Peter is most worried about, as well as the direct effects that deer have on endangered plants. It's clear that the deer density on Maine is out of control. But, in contrast to the way that many islanders frame the problem, Peter doesn't see these effects as directly a result of Paula's deer escaping one stormy night. From Peter's perspective, both fallow deer and black-tailed deer have the capacity to cause significant harm to the ecosystem if they are allowed to reach high densities, as has happened on Maine. Black-tailed deer can do exactly what fallow deer. They have all of the same trophic downgrading and biotic homogenizations. They can drive extinct many species of plants, and I could bend your ear forever telling you about the islands. So this is really interesting, because despite the general sentiment toward fallow deer on the island, the impact residents are feeling isn't actually to do with just the fallow deer. Single-species scapegoating is a common occurrence when dealing with an ecological imbalance, and one we'll talk more about later in this episode. For Peter, either species of deer at hyperabundant densities could cause the harm that we've seen on Maine Island, and he sees the current density levels as a result of aspects of the environmental movement in the 60s and 70s, decades before Paula's deer escaped from her farm. We know that in 1972, we outlawed deer hunting in the flat top islands off Nanaimo. And the reason we did was because many in my age group in 1972 had just experienced the banning of whaling in 1968, because we knew hunting was one of the worst things that was impacting species at that point. And so a lot of us in a somewhat naive sense banned hunting, thinking it would be good for deer. We just kind of forgot about all the rest. With the ban on hunting on Maine and in other areas in 1972, Peter thinks the situation would be the same no matter the species. Maine may be further along in the process, but many islands in the area will face the same challenges in the future if the situation remains unchanged. Peter traces the problem back much further than 1972 as well. He sees the deer density on Maine as directly connected to the changes that European settlers enacted on this land and on the indigenous people who lived here. One of the first things to remember then is that the ecosystems we have have been changing rapidly. They've been affected by all kinds of things. And we've had, you know, potentially 12,000 years of indigenous people who've used the landscape and they've always used it to provide what they needed to live. To understand the terrestrial environment in the Gulf Islands, we absolutely must remember that the environment we see still has the history of indigenous management in it. But we also don't use the landscape in ways that were used historically because we have colonized the area with many more humans than were here historically. And so we alter the habitat. So the landscape is gonna change. One of the most obvious ones for many of us in the Gulf Islands is to imagine what the landscape would have looked like 
when indigenous groups were managing it for food production, because we know that there would have been, as an example, frequent fires. The regular application of low-intensity fires in the Gulf Island, we know led to a habitat which was much more open than the one we have now. And that would have been much more of what biologists call a savanna landscape, a landscape which is dominated by grassland meadow, shrubs, and large trees spaced. And that would have been kind of maintained. Now, why As Peter explained to me, European colonization of these lands drastically altered the way in which indigenous peoples had been managing their territories since time immemorial. Dealing with colonial rule, dispossession from their lands and waters, disease, and residential schools prevented indigenous peoples from stewarding their lands and waters as they had been. In addition, the European settlers had different expectations and visions for the landscape and the ecosystem. For example, removing predators that would have historically kept deer populations in check. So what do we have now? Now we have a situation where we've converted a lot of habitat into things for human use. And we've removed the predators from the landscape. And we're hoping to conserve those indigenous landscapes, those ones that are meadows, shrubby areas, and big old trees. We're hoping to conserve those by putting parks aside where we don't burn, we don't hunt, and we have no predators. Unfortunately, that's a fool's game. And we will never conserve most of the species that we are now concerned about in those small postage stamp preserves. Because the reason they were there in the first place was due to the extensive land management exercises of indigenous people in maintaining a living for themselves. So if you take away the processes that were maintaining the landscape and replace them with other processes, things are going to change. And that's what's happened. From hearing Peter talk, it made me realize just how many changes our ecosystems have been through and are likely going to go through in the future as well. There's no natural state, and that if we have preferences about the type of ecosystems we want to be a part of, then we need to do a better job of actively envisioning, articulating, and taking steps towards making those ecosystems a reality. To give us a sense what this looks like on an everyday basis, we talked to Rob Underhill. Rob is a plant biologist who has worked at the Main Island Conservancy for the last 10 years. And fun fact, Rob's grandma taught my grandma how to swim when she was a little girl growing up on Pender Island. Yeah, my name is Rob Underhill and uh, I've been living on Maine for about eight years now, uh, working for the Conservancy for 10. I asked Rob what he thought should be done about the deer on Maine. Uh, what is quite obvious is to, to reduce the, the deer populations by some mechanism, and in particular try to reduce the fallow deer, which are a non-native species, to ideally zero. We can't go back in time and observe how many deer were here in the past. We know there was a lot less deer based on what we see happening in the ecosystem now. We had a wildlife biologist from UBC, Mr. Peter Arkeese, come here as a guest speaker once, and he's been working more broadly on the deer overpopulation issue. He suggested that for Maine Island, approximately 200 black-tailed deer might be something that would be considered a natural population. 
Over email, Rob wrote to me about what the current estimates of the deer population on Maine are. He said, Although there is no exact number, pellet count studies done in 2013 suggest that Maine has a deer population anywhere from 1,000 to 4,200. He acknowledged that this is a wide range and based on some key assumptions, but this is his best informed guess. So, from a historic population of about 200 deer, it's now probably at least five times that. At least, yeah. It could be as high as 20 times. Basically, everyone agrees that the number of deer is way too high, but there's no consensus about what to do about it. Rob and Peter both cite the long-running hunting ban as a contributing factor to Maine's deer problem. The province officially reopened hunting in 2018, albeit with some conditions attached. But it still doesn't sit well with everyone. Some islanders are concerned about public safety. Most land on Maine is privately held, and there are almost always neighbors or roads nearby. Also, to hunt legally, you need explicit permission from the landowner. Others feel strongly that hunting should only be allowed for the fallow deer and not the blacktail, even though both species contribute to trophic downgrading. Finally, there are some folks who feel that killing any deer no matter what species, is plain wrong. Instead, they advocate for contraceptive vaccines, more fences, relocation programs, or simply tolerance. The disagreement has played out in newspapers, public Facebook groups, and town hall meetings. But no matter what side those folks take, it's clear that many people care, and they all want Maine to see a healthier future. Rob and Peter both told us the first step for any community is to discuss their goals for their ecosystems. And by doing so, the best solutions will flow from those goals. So I asked Rob what he envisions as a healthy ecosystem on Maine Island. So for, for me on Maine Island, what I would like to see as a healthy ecosystem is one where all the different types of ecosystems on Maine Island, ranging from wetlands to Gary Oak, dry forests are represented in large enough areas to support the different plants and animals that live in those different ecosystem types, and that the processes that naturally occur within those ecosystems, so patterns of change over time, that the different species that live there rely on are taking place. And here's Peter once again on how to move forward. Yeah, the options of course, come out of some kind of community discussion, not just about what's available to them for options, but that what they want their environment to look like. So it will depend on what the community wants. And the options then come out of community decisions, because the truth is we live in a democracy, we share our landscapes, and we need to have a shared purpose for how we manage our lands. It seemed to us that the community on Maine is stuck on how to move forward. The overpopulation of deer is felt by everyone on some level, and the fallow deer end up taking the blame. But when solutions get suggested, there's a lot of pushback. And there just isn't the political will or enough resources allocated to make this issue a priority. We seem to have stalled. Yeah, it's tough. And there's no going back to the way things were. It feels like instead, we need some new ideas and ways of thinking about problems like these especially when there's a new species involved in shifting ecological dynamics. So I called up Nick Rio. My name's Nick Rio. Um, I'm Anishinaabe 
from the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians. My home community and tribe is pretty spread out geographically across what is now northern Michigan. But we're also a cross-boundary community in the sense that the U.S.-Canada border crossed us. And I'm a professor of uh, Indigenous Environmental Studies at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Nick has been involved in the management of invasive species for around 20 years, first as a volunteer and then professionally. Originally, he viewed invasive species as only something to remove. I, I basically recognized them as a threat to the plants and animals that my community has thousands of years of relationships invested, just kind of straight up threatened by colonizers. You know, I kind of saw it in those terms and so, you know, worked pretty concertedly to, to remove them or to, to be involved in that way. However, Nick's perspective started to shift as he continued to discuss these issues with elders, community members, and other academics. I'd had a series of conversations with a close friend of mine and a collaborator named Laura Ogden, and she's an anthropologist and works really on sort of trying to understand the dense web of relationships that humans and, and more than human have together. And so she posed a really good question. Okay, so how, how did these new plants and animals fit in to like your people's network of relations? Like if you regard plants and animals as kin, if a new plant or animal moves in, what are they? This was an important moment for Nick and his thinking about how we relate to plants and animals that are new to an area. So that's what I'm really interested in now, is having conversations with people and, and trying to think together more broadly and openly about what, what does it mean to have a relationship with uh, an introduced plant or animal. Because the work that I was doing prior it wasn't very relational, <laughs> you know. It was, it was, it was just removal. You know, it was like I was. Def it was like it was defense. Now, Nick approaches invasive or introduced species with a different mindset. It doesn't mean that now I just fully embrace like any and all plant and animal introductions. I'm, I'm just a little more introspective about it. If nothing else, it's encouraged me to start with not blaming plants and animals. You know, like, it's not their fault that they were introduced. Maybe they migrated on their own, but more, more often they were moved by people. It's not their fault. All beings have roles on the earth and they all have gifts. And so, like, I'm interested in knowing what their roles and what their gifts are in general. And then, you know, what that might mean in this, if they're in a new place. Like, what, how does that translate to that new place? To me, that's an important starting place. Nick talked about non-human beings is being organized into plant and animal nations, a concept which informs how he reacts when thinking about an introduced species. Growing up, I didn't really hear that framing, but I like it, it sort of fits. And the reason that it fits is that our teachings and our ways of understanding this kind of community of plants, animals, humans, uh, and other, other beings, is that they have their own knowledge systems, their own ways of understanding their role on Earth. They have their own teachings, their own skill sets, their own gifts, their own stories. For, like for instance, deer. I've been told that they have, they have ceremonies. You know, not only are they social animals, which most people would recognize, but they have like society. That's the kind of thing that, that I want to be able to recognize among those relatives. It's, it's something that I've been taught exists and, and that kind of works for me. 
the idea of nations also fits with the idea that plants and animals have ways of making decisions as groups, that they should have rights to be asked and approached and engaged as opposed to just humans doing what they will without negotiating that with, uh, with another group. Thinking of plants and animals on these terms informs how Nick reacts when a new nation moves into an area and how he thinks we can approach these tricky situations. I think a lot about the fact that wherever a plant or animal comes from, it's got a really special role. You know, it's got different gifts that it offers to people in the form of food or medicine or other things. As teachers, we learn a lot from plants and animals. Nick talked about the North American beaver, known where he comes from as an engineer and for having a big impact on biodiversity. These beavers are invasive in Tierra del Fuego, and Nick has some ideas about creating knowledge exchanges between communities that have had traditional relationships to an animal nation and those who are struggling with that relationship. If people in Tierra del Fuego were to maybe partner up with and, and learn from uh, trappers in Quebec or Michigan or Ontario or what have you, I think that, that that could at least, they would be engaging with those animals in a way that's other than combative. Asking the question of what gifts this plant or animal has and how it has traditionally been a part of its home ecosystem are important ways to think in an open way about newcomer plant and animal nations. Once we ask these questions, then we can have a better idea about how to build a relationship with a certain plant or animal. And Nick thinks these relationships are necessary to responsible interaction with our changing ecosystems. Basically on a practical level, one thing it involves is like being open to talking to, to plants and animals. If you're out fishing or whatnot, like talking to fish, you know, talking to those beings that live in the waterway, is, it's, it, it shouldn't be weird. It shows those beings a certain level of respect and an interest in, in being in a relationship. I mean, in, especially if part of your relationship with those plants is they offer you something, that you harvest them for something. You're going to take the life of another being. That's a very sacred moment. And so there should be some reverence there. But I am also, I think, in favor of a more everyday conversational interactions with plants and animals. For Nick, Having relationships with the plants and animals around us is the first step to interacting with and stewarding our ecosystems. This will be the basis of any strategy designed to respond to newcomer species. Every situation is different, right? And so one thing to avoid is to just treat everything the same. It's an invasive species, let's get after it, let's get it out of here. And it's not one size fits all. Every, every situation is different, ecologically, economically, Socially, there are, there's always different circumstances, and so you need to take a, a nuanced approach. And I would suggest thinking openly and broadly about the suite of options. Sometimes, if a species is very new, Nick thinks a traditional eradication approach makes sense. Now, if it's a new, new newcomer, <laughs> there's, if they're just kind of showing up, then I think there's a lot of wisdom in the advice that you get from basic ecology and from basic sort of natural resource management, which is if you can identify these newcomers really early and actually try to eliminate them early on, you know, I mean, maybe with respect, you know, instead of, oh, it's a damn weed, and then burning it with fervor, <laughs> but with respect. Other times, however, as with the fallow deer on Main Island, the time for this type of early management has passed. 
And these are the situations where Nick thinks that an open mind, in combination with knowledge about and respect for these newcomers, can help us in forming a healthier relationship with them. For the more well-established situations, I think taking some time to think about like, well, what role could this plant or animal play here, if any? What responsibilities could this plant or animal enact towards us? They may or may not be here to stay, but at least while they're here, they're, they are a part of the community. And so what's their role in the community? And then what responsibilities, if anything, do we have towards them as members of that community? And you know, maybe at the end of the day, the only responsibility that people think they have is to get rid of them because their responsibility is really to sort of protect those longer term inhabitants or the native species. And that's fine, but I just, to just to think openly that there may be possibilities for other trajectories as well or other roles. Whatever the ultimate strategy may be, for Nick, it needs to start with the knowledge that each plant and animal has a role, has a gift, and isn't to blame for the impact they may be having on our ecosystems. When we're engaging with invasive species, you know, maybe we could be generous in spirit and in heart, even if what we're doing is cutting or burning or removing or what have you, or hunting. It could be done with kindness and generosity and understanding that it's not their fault. Nick's approach could at times challenge a traditional conservation approach, especially for situations where an introduced species is so established, like on Maine. It makes me think that a good first step to dealing with the deer problem is to strive to build closer relationships with the non-humans in our lives, and then maybe solutions or ways forward could come from that place that Nick talks about, of being generous in spirit when we engage with these plant and animal nations. I really like the spirit of generosity Nick brings to his interactions with plants and animals. It reaffirms my own attempts at chatting with the crows, the trees, and even the rats I encounter in my own neighborhood. I think it's safe to say that for most settlers like myself, this isn't a practice that we're explicitly taught to value. But I feel like a lot of folks come to it naturally. If you live in a place for long enough, you get to know your neighbors, and you notice when someone new arrives. But when a recent arrival is a plant or a non-human animal, rather than welcoming them, we usually just try to go back to the way things were. Instead, we could take a moment to consider a larger role that an introduced species might play, and how we can adapt to a future together. And when the way things were was always a product of the active efforts of Indigenous people to create the ecosystem they wanted, going back isn't an option given how many changes settler colonialism has brought to these territories. I guess what it seems we need to go back to is acting from a place of knowledge, with specific goals in mind about how we want our communities to look. As Peter has said, the solutions will stem from those community goals. And there are many Indigenous nations and people who have the knowledge of and relationships with the land that is so valuable when thinking about these issues. So we started talking about how this could happen specifically with deer on the Gulf Islands, and we heard about a really cool initiative happening on a neighboring island to Maine. You're talking about Galliano Island, right? Yeah, I am. <laughs> okay, so this is this is me. I have to I have to talk about this now. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a little awkward because 
uh, I usually get to talk on this program about things other people are doing, and today we're talking about something that I'm doing. Uh, so I'm a little bit close to this. Turning the tables on you. <laughs> I know. Tell us about Feed the People. So the Feed the People workshop is a partnership between a number of different organizations here on the Gulf Islands, including the Galliano Conservancy, where I work, and several elders on Penelicate Island, Karen and Richard Charlie and Stephen Sylvester. And essentially, they hunt deer on conservancy lands and then over the course of two days, teach workshop participants how to uh, respectfully butcher and preserve and prepare that harvest. Simple as that. Galliano Island, like Maine, also struggles with a huge deer population. Although, in their case, it's actually mostly blacktail. Both islands are small and relatively food insecure. We were interested in the Feed the People workshop because it suggested that the deer could be the solution to their own problem. Right. In this specific case, harvesting some deer not only provides a source of protein for people and reduces the strain on plant communities, it means that the remaining deer will be better fed and healthier overall. Yeah. It could actually be a win-win-win for everyone involved. Humans, deer, and our ecosystems at large. So we went to check out the workshop for ourselves to learn how hunting and preparing food can be part of these relationships of care for our communities. These animals are very fresh, so it should be very easy to skin. So all you do is you grab these knuckle, and you start the skinning process. And you just touch the knife. You don't have to be hacking. Just easy touch, and then skin just falls apart. So you do both sides of your knee. And it's very fast after. That's it, that's all you do is just clear the skin around the legs. And then you start the back. This is Elder Stephen Sylvester from Penelicate Nation, leading the Feed the People workshop on Galliano Island. It was a beautiful, rainy fall day, and Stephen, Richard, and Karen came over from their home on Penelicate Island to share their knowledge of deer harvesting with the mainly settler community on Galliano. There were a range of different comfort levels and experiences in the workshop. Some people raised their own animals and were comfortable butchering, but had never worked with deer. Some people, it was their first time processing an animal. And some people, like me, don't even eat meat. <laughs> yeah, how was that for you? <laughs> I was nervous before we went. I've never really experienced something like that before, and I wasn't sure how I was going to feel. And at the same time, I was really excited and interested. But I had nothing to worry about. Karen, Richard, and Stephen created such a good learning environment. They made me feel so comfortable, and the way they were interacting with the deer and teaching us to interact with them as well ended up feeling a lot less weird to me than seeing meat in the grocery store. That's all you do. Shape around these knees. Just around these elbows and on the back of these back legs, that's where the most tendons are too. We're just taking off the lower 
the lower leg just so it'll be easier for us to soak it in the bowl so the flies are not going to come and lay their eggs on it. So that's what we're trying to do is to preserve the meat so the, the flies are not going to come and lay the shaya. And so how important of a part of the process is Keeping the flies away, it's a very important process because if we get maggots and other bugs on it, it's ruined. Karen, Richard, and Stephen were so good at explaining everything and making people feel comfortable with the process. And Joan, you were saying in the beginning, I remember you talking about how this is new for you, using knives yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. cutting up meat. How's it going for you? It's going good. I feel very supported by how they've arranged it. What you got there, Autumn? We're doing the pack strap now. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I feel, I, you can feel the lines. Yeah, yeah. You can feel. Feeling is a lot more important than, than I thought it was going to be. Just feeling the animal and, yes, yes. and where everything goes together, comes off together. <laughs> and that feeling is a part of what Karen, Richard, and Stephen are hoping to share. Their family and community has been hunting on these territories for generations. Here's Karen and Stephen. My people have hunted one way for a very long time. I've watched my grandfather hunt, my dad hunt, my husband hunt, my brothers hunt. Now my kids are hunting. My boys know how to hunt and most of my nephews came to me to learn how to hunt. Hunting and harvesting is about food security and culture, but it's also a part of their practice of and commitment to stewardship. Everything has to be run like a stewardship. Everybody has to learn their place in our community. So my perfect dream is a lot of understanding, more people living off the land. Because if we had even 10 more hunters out here, like the deer population would be cut back so much that, you know, it'd be bearable. We keep our culture going. That's what I'm doing. I'm teaching my young people how to look for medicine in the woods, how to harvest from the ocean, and how to look after the land. We're not going to be over-harvesting, but trying to maintain a, a healthy balance, not just for us, but for everybody. We are stewards of the land, and we belong to the land. The land does not belong to us. You can own 10 acres, but in the end, after you're gone, the land's still going to be there with or without your name. You have to make sure people understand that we are a keystone in this community. Without our people, a lot of things would have failed right from when the first boats came in that we help people adapt and overcome their problems here. I think it's our responsibility now to do this, to lay the groundwork for this, because there has to be understanding. Only with understanding can we have progress. Without progress, we're gonna fail. The guidance and leadership from these Penelicate elders is so generous. And for me, it highlights what we already know, that through experience on the land, Indigenous peoples recognize the necessity of responsible stewardship. But if we hop back across Active Pass from Galliano Island to Maine, we
we can put some of these lessons to work. But it's not as simple as just start hunting. No, it's not. Although there is some movement in that direction, hunting still really divides the community on Maine for the time being. It's not clear when there will be a consensus. I'd like to think most residents want what Rob wants, to live on an island with a rich biodiversity and a range of ecosystem types. But we don't all agree on how to get there. Or how we balance our environment along with our other values, like public safety and the economy. And if our collective indecision translates to inaction, we're just committing ourselves to the current trajectory, even if most of us can see that it's not necessarily good. Well, the political landscape has made it pretty clear that our collective decision-making structures need some re-evaluation. But wherever we go from here, we can start by grounding our roles and responsibilities within a web of relationships, human and otherwise. And going forward, our ecosystems are just going to continue to be affected by climate change. We can expect unfamiliar plants and animals to be introduced practically everywhere. But all of them come from somewhere. If we look to those places, there will be people with their own deep history and maybe some lessons to share. If we can recognize these creatures as more than invaders, we might see that they come bearing gifts. It's all about being adaptable. Working with the land, you have to learn how to be adaptable. The world's constantly changing, so is the ocean. Like with the salmon, we're over-harvested. So our next meat is deer meat. So that's what we have to rely on right now, is the deer meat, because our salmon's gone. And that was the main staple of our diet. So it's always about working with change the world's constantly changing, and we have to with it. There's another medicine right there. Producers Sadie Couture and Russell Gendron. Thanks to Sadie and Russell and to all their guests on this episode. To Sinkton, John Elliott, Paula Buchholz, Peter Arkisi, Rob Underhill, Nick Rio, Stephen Sylvester, and Karen Charlie. Special thanks to Richard Charlie, Ramsey Sylvester, Deblica Gwynn, Hannah Tolfson, Adrian Levine, The Galliano Conservancy, the Feed the People organizers and participants, and the whole community of Maine Island. Music by Dee Nettles, Jacinton, John Elliott, Chad Crouch, The Joy Drops, Heptone Banjo Orchestra, Your Me, Hot Spring, Anner Andros, Campbell Bay After Dark, Yusu, Meteoric Twin, and Sunfish Moon Light. Future Ecologies is an independent production. You can help make this work possible by supporting the show at patreon.com slash futureecologies or just by leaving a nice rating and review. 
Find us at futureecologies.net or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.